There was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears up on the mountain. (laughs) There was a famous contest going down. You may have heard of it. On one side, there was an altar, and the prophets of Baal were begging for their God to hear them. On the other side, there was another altar, and a single prophet named Elijah gave a single prayer. Literally, blood, sweat, and tears. They're cutting themselves. They're hooting, hollering, dancing, trying to get Baal's attention, and weeping and crying out. Nothing happens. Elijah's had enough. He's like, okay, guys. It's past lunchtime. Do you think Baal maybe like went out to Subway and forgot about you? My turn. And all Elijah does is he offers a simple prayer. And fire falls from heaven and consumes his offering on the altar. I feel like we live in a world that is a whole lot of the prophets of Baal. There's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears behind this angst we have in life. Because humanity walks through life in darkness. We do. We're stumbling about, trying to find our way. We're groping for anything that will give us security or a foothold. And the prophets of Baal in the dark are groping for their fire. And they're praying and they're crying out. And they're trying to make it happen. But it fails them. And Elijah See, the contrast here is Elijah does not try to make the fire happen. He's not putting the wood up in the perfect teepee shape that he learned in Boy Scouts so that the perfect bonfire would ignite when he just put one little match to the tinder. He didn't go about all of that. In fact, he did the opposite. And he started dousing the altar with buckets and buckets of water. And yet, and yet, fire came to it. He didn't make it happen. This wasn't fire from the ground up. This was fire from God down. See, the prophets of Baal are trying to build their own bonfire. They're trying to make it happen from the ground up. From man to God. Blood, sweat, and tears is all they got in return. In our darkness, we see in the world a lot of this trying to find our way, so we're trying to light our own fires. We're trying to ignite our own bonfires and say, Ah, I'm man, I make fire! And we all feel warmed and comfortable as we gather around it and huddle in fear of the dark beyond the light. In Isaiah's day, what this looked like in more concrete terms, is it looked like all of the cool kids on the block. The Assyrians, the Egyptians, the Babylonians. Those were the cool countries in the world. And Israel was enamored with their flashiness, their brilliance, the vibrancy of everything they did. Isaiah basically comes on the scene and says, everything that you love about these bonfires that the cool kids are making, that's idolatry. That's what Isaiah basically sums it all up as. Today, the cool kids on the block are a little bit different. I mean, if you're talking terms of countries, we are that cool kid. So we're not necessarily yearning to be like other nations. So what we've done is we've created our own artificial light within our own nation. Cities are full of neon lights, spotlights, lights everywhere, grabbing our attention. Come here, shop here, look here. Just think of Vegas and the Strip. 
We have created our own artificial light. We have ignited our own bonfires to help us feel secure in the insecurity of the darkness of our fallenness. Or we have artificial light right here. Our smartphones. And these are meant to capture us and to keep us. And they give us a little bit of comfort in case something happens. I can just call someone. Um, we can stay connected. I can always know what's going on. <gasps> Look what just happened. Did you guys see the news? It just came in. Oh, you guys are so good. No one reached for their phone. I was bluffing you. You do that with teenagers, everyone's like, oh my goodness. It wouldn't be news. People are like, do you see what the celebrity snapped? Okay. Um, but it's, it's actually true. You can go online and just Google this. There, you can go online and Google this. There, there are, um, what the phone makers are doing is it's intentionally designed to hook us and to make us dependent. It's designed that way. One of the ways it's done is through color. And there have been studies on how to make the apps more colorful and everything that you're looking at so that it's more pleasing and it keeps you coming to it. The colors are vibrant. The artificial light is giving us security. And if you doubt this, you can actually, and I've done this, um, you can actually go on your phone and turn color off and turn it to grayscale. And when you do so, you realize this is actually a pretty dull device. The color, light, it's all there. Our televisions, we, we, we light the torch and the bonfire in our homes, and we have the television. Okay, I'm not saying these are idols. They can be when they're out of place. But it's, it's this aspect that humanity loves to feel secure, and we have a lot of artificial lights. The prophets of Baal are incredibly smart. Those prophets in Elijah's time weren't able to create fire, but the prophets of Baal in our culture have more than succeeded in creating fire. We look at that and say, wait a minute, I know the light of the world. It's Jesus, the true light. It's not going to go out. It's not artificial. It's organic and natural and authentic. It's from God himself. And so we look at our society and the growing secularism and all the artificial lights that are taking over, and we think we've got to go and be missionaries to our culture. Great. And we talk about that here, right? So we have Mike Beavers give us ideas on how to be missional. Take the gospel, evangelize our culture. Great. Problem. We think it's as simple as doing it the way it's done on the mission field, in Africa, in India, around the world. So we just say, okay, so we just got to move in with our society and kind of learn their language and their stories and be like them and then slip the gospel in. Because that's actually what you do on the mission field. You approach them, right? You're not trying to make them become American. You're becoming one of them, like Jesus became humanity, and share the gospel that way. Well, it works around the world because they're what, and this is, um, this is what Mark Sayers says in his book that I've been really enriched by. Uh, he explains that they're what you call a first culture. A first culture. A first culture is a pre-Christian culture. You know, they're worshiping idols, literally, and they have all these gods, and they believe in, like, these forces behind everything. You bring Christianity to them, it brings all this in a more concrete, real form. Like, wait, there's a God, and he came to us, and it makes sense to them, and they receive it. But the problem is, is that our society that succeeded in creating its own fire is not a pre-Christian culture. It's what you call a third culture. It's post-Christian. And post-Christian is not the same thing as pre-Christian. Pre-Christian is superstitious and it believes in all these gods and it's like, oh, one god, that makes a lot more sense. Post-Christian is, yeah, 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 we already know about that. We've actually moved on from the whole god thing. 
we in actually post-Christian culture has done is it hasn't gone all the way back to the first culture and say, oh yeah, forget the Christianity thing. It hasn't done that. It has moved on and said, we are going to rob and loot the kingdom of God, but just get rid of the king. So actually what we see in our third culture is we see a lot of Christian values stripped of Christ. So you have a lot of people that have their progressive liberal views. Well, actually, thank you very much. Many of those came from Christianity, but you've simply taken Christ out of it, and now we don't, even, we don't recognize it anymore. A lot of the benefits our culture has now is thanks to the second culture, Christianity. So, here's what we do, okay? We think we're going to a pre-Christian culture. Oh, there's no Christ here. It's a pre-Christian culture. No, it's a post-Christian culture. And what we have to be careful of is this. If you go and be a missionary, they are not trying to convert you. You get to convert them. But if you go as a missionary to the third culture, this culture is aggressive, We think we're evangelizing them, but they're actually trying to evangelize us. No, 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 no. We're just like you. We we do all the same things just without Christ. And then sooner or later, and you've seen this happen, Christians start to lose their Christianity. Like, oh, I can be spiritual but not religious. I can totally do this Christian thing without the church. What are they doing? They're adopting culture's idea of the kingdom without the king. And if we're not careful, we're ooed by the light and say, ooh, we've got the true light. We'll give it to you, Jesus. But then we're like, oh, look at the neon flashing lights and the blue light and all this artificial. It looks so much more vibrant that we end up thinking, you know what, guys? We come back to our second culture like we have a lot to learn from them. And then without knowing it, we've become a missionary of third culture to second culture. We become missionaries of the post-Christian culture to the Christians. That's scary. And it terrifies me because I see this happening in certain churches. Now, our particular community up here is very conservative, and we tend to be very suspicious of anything that we're not used to. It's not as, I don't know that we are necessarily, I, but, but you look down the hill, this is sweeping through Christianity. And it's terrifying that we are relying on the artificial light rather than God's light. Okay, I think I've said enough about that. Um, Look at Isaiah 50, verse 10. Who among you fears Yahweh and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of Yahweh and rely on his God. So let him who walks in darkness and has no light. That's everyone. That's all of humanity. Let him then trust in Yahweh and rely on his God. Alternative option, verse 11. Behold, here's what other people do. All you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, go ahead, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. But this you have from my hand, God threatens. You shall lie down in torment. Isaiah is proposing two paths. All right, humanity's in darkness. No one has light. Two options. Trust in God and rely on him. Or build your own bonfires Light your own torches and carry them around. Okay. Which one is more appealing? 
trust God. That's scary. You've seen those Christians. They're not the hippest bunch of people. Their values are too uh, retrogressive, old-fashioned virtues and all this stuff. Amen. <laughs> but, I mean, look at those people dancing around their fire. Ooh, 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 ha, ha. Like, that looks fun. They got it together. Isaiah's warning. He's warning those who create artificial light. Those who are like the prophets of Baal, trying to get it to happen through their blood, sweat, and tears so that they can say, ah, look what we've made. We've saved ourselves. We have it all. Thank you, Christianity. We just don't need your God anymore because we have light. We have fire. Israel was definitely being pulled that way. The nations of the world were so... They're dazzling and glittering. So Isaiah's like, no, no, no. we got to trust God. Yeah, but God's a, like dull and it's not flashy. And when's the last time he actually did something like poke his head through the clouds and boo and got everyone like, oh, okay, we believe. It seems that way on the surface. It does. So we need to be careful that we don't simply go with whatever feels right, seems right, looks right. Because we could quickly go from being servants to our culture and become servants of our culture. We think we're going to serve them. We come back carrying a torch and saying, church, look at this. There's a new way. Hmm. So then, that's the artificial light of the prophets of Baal. But let's see what the servant does. Our servant in Isaiah He prefers the morning light. So let's look at Isaiah 50. We'll start in verse 1, and then we'll get to that warning at the end. Isaiah 50, verse 1, thus says Yahweh. Now he's he's going to be asking these questions to Israel to challenge them, okay? He says, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors... Is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? What, is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. And you think I couldn't save you. So what's happening? He's challenging them. Okay, show me the certificate of divorce that I gave you to say, get out of here. Or show me which creditor I sold you to, which was a thing back then. If you couldn't pay your debts, often it was your family that would be the next form of payment. So you'd have to give away your children if you went in debt. Sometimes that's how it worked. God's saying, he's asking them, okay, when did this happen? You see, Israel was blaming God for their exile, for the loss of their kingdom, for the fact that the Babylonians took over them. They haven't quite gotten it to their heads yet that actually they said, ooh, Babylon, look at the neon lights. They're flashing so vibrantly and, ah, the fire burned them. See, Israel hasn't realized that. They're blaming God for their mess. So he's saying, okay, where's the proof that I gave you up? You can't find it because it was for verse two or the end of verse one. It was for your iniquities that you were sold. You sold yourself. You said, ooh, fire, let me warm myself. And then you got too close. So that's what he's saying. He's challenging them. Was I unable? Yeah, you did. You thought I couldn't bring fire down, so you had to start your own. You bought your own Babylonian bonfire building kit. And it blew up in your face. So in contrast to Israel's rebellion, we have the servant. So remember, This is the third song 
about this servant. And we've seen in the first two that this servant is, is showing us Jesus. Isaiah doesn't know the name yet, but he's seeing a figure who will come to lead us through the wilderness, to take us to God's promised land, who will help us get rid of our idolatries. That's the servant. He's going to come and help us and carry our burdens. So do you remember the first one in Isaiah 42? This was just last week. Isaiah 42, the servant came not to the noisy center of society and said, boom, watch me do magic tricks. He came to the marginalized, the spaces and the cracks where the seismic shifts begin. And he threw these cracked pots and these foolish and weak people. He threw them, has sent his shockwaves into the world. That's the servant. Then we saw uh, two weeks ago, we went out of order on purpose, but in Isaiah 49, it's actually the chapter before this. Um, Isaiah 49, we saw that the servant comes to gather a severed world. The religion of me, meitis, the idol of self, it naturally drives people away from us. Because your proximity to me threatens my autonomy and my selfishness to do whatever I want. So we naturally push each other away to give ourselves room. That's the idolatry of self. But the servant comes and says, look, stop focusing on yourself. You're actually closing the world in on you. Go and serve. Go outward. Go to people. Be with them. Help them. That will bring the severed world together. So the servant has that mission. And now tonight, we're going to see the servant. Um, he's going to serve with the right light. He's going to, amen. He's going to serve with the right light. Not the artificial torches and all that. Okay. So the servant comes in here in verse 4. The Lord Yahweh has given me. Now, by the way, if you're reading in the New King James they capitalize all the personal pronouns here, so it's very clear that the servant is referring to Christ. Other translations don't capitalize pronouns, and so you have to read into it. But just so you know, we're looking at Christ here. The Lord Yahweh has given me, Christ, the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. What do we see when the church is trying to go into the third culture, the post-Christian culture? They're trying to go toward the artificial light and say, oh, no, 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 come to the true light. What do we usually see them doing? Well, if they're not aware that they are being evangelized, they're actually trying to get comfortable with the powerful, the popular, the wealthy. You see this all the time. Churches that have these great hookups with these very popular people, and they become these beacons and these centers for attraction. Um, but this is not what the servant does. The servant is learning how to comfort the weary. Not how to get comfortable with the wealthy, but how to comfort the weary. The servant, the tongue of one who is taught that he may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Verse 4 continues, Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord Yahweh has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward like Israel. Ooh, the light. And they kept going. But this servant said, yeah, that light hurts my eyes. Honestly, it's kind of harsh. See, morning by morning, the servant prefers the light of morning. Now think about this for a minute. Artificial light is harsh on the eyes. And so now, you know, there's all these studies about, oh, blue light's not good for you. It keeps you up at night, right? Because this artificial light is not actually good for us. And it's harsh and it's very bright and colorful and vibrant. But morning light, it's very soft. It's very subtle. It's very gentle. It comes on slowly. It slowly increases. Harsh light comes on big and obnoxious and in your face. And if it does anything, 
it starts to wane and say, plug me in, low power mode. See, the servant is already on a very different track. Yes, it sounds like when you're in darkness, trust Yahweh is a very boring option, but it's a little crack of light that our eyes adjust to, and it grows brighter and brighter and brighter till it has greater force than any artificial light. See, artificial light starts strong, but it can never outdo the sun at full strength. Morning by morning, he awakens, he awakens, me, my, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Verse 5, the Lord Yahweh has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, I turned not backward. Even to this point, verse 6, even to the point that I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Wow. So in our society, everyone's marching to their own drum, right? That's uncomfortable. Go this way. Don't like that. I'll choose this truth. We're all marching to our own drum. But the servant is marching to another's drum. He's opening his ear to receive his M.O. And even when his back is being struck and his beard is being pulled, he's saying, I did not go backward. I did not rebel. I'm going to keep going. That's the servant. That's the path Jesus is leading us down. Verse 7, but... It sounded like, oh my gosh, I can't do this. But, in verse 7, the Lord Yahweh helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Do you know what it means to be vindicated? It's like you've been wronged and people have told you you're wrong. And often what we want to do as humans is we want to say, no, I'm right, watch this. And we want to defend ourselves. To be vindicated is for someone else to step in and say, you persecutors are wrong. I'm going to set this person up in glory next to me. Jesus was vindicated in the resurrection. The world's answer for him was the cross. God's answer for him was the resurrection. That's vindication. So he says, he who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. No fear, right? Because God is near. Behold, the Lord Yahweh helps me. Who will declare, my, who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. That's the servant. Very different approach. He's not going for the artificial light. He's going for the morning light. And he's able to do this because even though it's hard, he knows it's only going to get brighter. This is the beauty of following God's light is it gets brighter if you keep going. You don't have to be stimulated with new forms of old light. It literally gets brighter and brighter to the perfect day. Proverbs 4.18, but the path of the righteous gets brighter and brighter until the noon sun. So then Isaiah, with this vision of the servant, then warns us in verse 10, who among you fears Yahweh and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light, all of us, trust in the name of Yahweh and rely on his God. Behold, though, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, go ahead and walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. Look what we made. <laughs> but this you have from my hand, you will lie down in torment. In the end, it will shut off and you will be weeping and gnashing in darkness. That's the warning. So the servant, though, I love this, morning by morning, he's praying for this tongue to comfort others. He's waking up morning by morning with an open ear to hear as those who are taught. He's being instructed in a different way. Friends, we have to be instructed in a different way. Because left to your own devices, 
We are like moths attracted to the blue light. (laughs) We are. Israel left on their own who disregard Yahweh say, the Babylonian flame, and then they got fried and torched. We have to be instructed in another way because the prophets of Baal are masters at artificial light. So morning by morning, he says, I want you guys to go ahead. um, Hold your spot in Isaiah. Go over to Mark, the second book in the New Testament. It's to your right. Matthew, Mark. Mark chapter 1. This is actually, you might have noticed in the other two servant songs, there were direct quotes that related to Jesus. Like where the New Testament's literally pulling those verses and saying, boom, Jesus fulfilled this. This song, that doesn't happen. Now, there's a lot of hints and allusions, but there's no quotations. But this is still all the more powerful. Because you see Jesus not quoting Isaiah here, but he's practicing Isaiah here. So watch, and I, in, in Mark chapter 1, um, verse, I want, I want you to get the context. So we'll start in verse 29, and we'll get to what we're going to look at. Mark 1, 29. You just have to see this context. 129, and immediately Jesus left the synagogue where he had just cast out a demon out of a demon-possessed man, and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. The house of Simon and Andrew. So this is Peter's house and Andrew's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told Jesus about her. (laughs) I wonder what they told him about her. Oh, she's annoying. (laughs) I'm sure they told him about the illness. (laughs) But you just wonder what Peter, like, took a moment, like, and, oh, Jesus, if you could heal this part about her, too? (laughs) And he came and took her by the hand, Jesus did, took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. And Peter was more amazed that she was serving them than that the fever left her. I'm adding that, but I could just imagine. Now, verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to Jesus all who were sick and oppressed by demons. Okay, okay. This is the Sabbath, okay? Morning time, he casts a demon out, synagogue. All of the religious people were there. They saw it. Word goes out. He goes to Peter's mother-in-law's house, and everyone hears about the transformation and her, her fever leaving, and word starts to go around. Capernaum's a small fishing village up by the Sea of Galilee. You guys know. You know how small towns work. So by that evening, at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. Verse 33. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Now, Peter's looking out from his, his meager little fisherman's house, little hut. And it's small. They've actually excavated what they think is Peter's house, but it was, it's at least a common house in Capernaum. It's small. It's a bedroom. That's all it is. So here he is. The Hickville of the Sea of Galilee in a small little village And the whole town's at his door. (gasps) Peter's thinking. Now, you know how the Romans do things in this era? You want people to be around you because it makes you look powerful. And if you look powerful, you will get privileges and you'll get opportunities. Peter sees all these people and thinks, Oh, we're finally getting out of this place. I don't have to fish anymore. He's really excited about the opportunity of setting up a healing headquarters where Jesus will be the head honcho and everyone will come. And it will soon get around the Sea Galilee and all the villages will come to my house and I'll basically be second in charge because it's my property. And soon it will get to Jerusalem and we will be the center of the earth. Peter's an opportunist. And you would, we all would be in this situation. Verse 33, though. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. But verse 35. So the last one's healed. Everyone groggily gets to bed. Of course, after late-night ice cream snack to reward their hard work. Um, 
But in verse 35, rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And Jesus said to them, Yeah, let us go on to the next towns so that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. <laughs> okay. Peter comes out. Jesus, you are the talk of town. Did you see the front page of the newspaper? That's us. I know I'm right there too. That's us. Jesus, I was just thinking, you can see, like, he wakes up, right? And with the other guys, like, Andrew, James, John, I, 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 I was just thinking, we should get a neon sign at the top of the house with all these torches and these lights and get everybody to notice us with those little searchlights that go across the sky and, like, here, here, be healed. The Messiah's right here. Sponsored by Peter. We should get all of this. And then, like, let's tell G. Where is Jesus? And then there's like a line forming. Peter's like, oh my goodness, this is not good. The customers are here and our product is gone. Find Jesus. And they send out the search and rescue helicopters, right? They're like, this is not good. So they go out and they find him. And that's, that's, that's behind what he's saying. It's like, hey, everyone's looking for you. Where have you been? But Jesus is not lured by the artificial light that humans are lured by. He says, mm, yeah. But I know it will happen if I go back. If I go back, we will set up headquarters, and there will be a centralized power that we will be the distributors of, and people will come to us. I prefer to spread that power. I prefer to share it. I think as Jesus knew what corruption happens to us when we hold on to power, when we get a lot of it. And I believe he's modeling here for us how we're supposed to handle our talents, abilities, and power. We're never meant to put it underneath a neon sign. But oh, how much of Christianity is doing this now. I was reading, please don't judge me, but I was reading the New York Times yesterday. (laughs) Hey, you got to get one side of things, okay? And then you read the other side. Um, and they were talking about this pastor and just stuff that has come up in that church. And it's coming up in a lot of churches. You know, stuff's coming up in a lot of churches, right? And what's the common denominator you see in all these churches stuff's coming up in? They're massive churches. They have multi-satellite campuses. And the New York Times used the phrase, and I had to laugh out loud, Use the phrase superstar pastor. <laughs> and look, we're the ones that give them those labels, I guess. I mean, we're partly to blame because we have our little fan guys that we follow around. And, but, but what, how, does, how is that even synonymous with the word pastor, superstar? Pastor. And it just, I don't know, I, I could rant forever, but. Um, it just saddened me because you see Jesus, who did not say, look at all the people coming to our version of church. He's like, yeah, they've been blessed, and we're going to go bring this to other people. Rather than just, here's the big sign, keep coming. I remember, um, I don't remember who I heard this from. It might have been from Pastor Mike. It was a legitimate source that, you know, back in the big heyday, growing days of Calvary Chapel in the Jesus movement, um, they actually created, Pastor Chuck or somebody proposed him like plans to make Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa seat 50,000 people. Because like, there's this enormous movement going on. We need to build a building to house this. But you know what Chuck's answer to that was? He preferred to send out pastors to start their own churches. 
And that's actually, that's, that is how I see a modern version of what Jesus is doing here. It wasn't like, yeah, you know what? Let's turn Capernaum into the superstar town of Galilee and let's build a bigger house for Peter. Instead, he was into the let's distribute. See, we love the light and we love the big bonfire, but that is our fallen nature looking for security. The servant is all about the morning light. And the, the reason we came here was because you see Jesus getting up at the moment when he can create a huge following. He prefers to isolate himself early in the morning. Now, we talked about his isolating himself last week, so that, that's been covered. But, but the part about early in the morning to pray, friends... The way we protect ourselves against the lure of the artificial light is by waking up in the morning to pray. I'm sorry I don't have a much more impressive answer. But it is that simple. And so here we see Jesus doing what the servant does. Morning by morning, he awakens. Now, if there was a day Jesus should have slept in, deserved to sleep in, It was that morning. I know it's one glimpse, but it hints that this is a habit, that this is a routine of his to get up early, to pray. And he prays because he knows the temptation of the bonfire. He knows the temptation that the prophets of Baal invite us to, come on, work up a bigger flame. And he has to pray against it. Now um, go over to Psalm chapter 5. Psalms is in the middle of the Bible-ish. Psalms chapter 5. The first five Psalms are very important to the whole book, actually. Um, I love teaching the Psalms, so we'll get there someday. But chapter 1 and 2 are introductions to the entire book. And they're inviting you, the prayer, into what this book will do for you. So Psalm chapter 1 is like, meditate on God's way, and everything will turn out well for you. Psalm chapter 2 says, those who meditate on God's way will not follow the way of the crowds, which are raising their fists against the king in heaven and saying, well, do it our own way. They instead worship the king in heaven. Psalm chapter 3 warns us that those who become psalmists, who pray through these prayers, they're going to experience enemies. People are going to hate them. So it cautions you like, hey, trust in God. And then four and five end the introduction to the Psalms. Chapter four is an evening prayer. Chapter five is a morning prayer. And it's believed that these were actually prayed at the evening and morning sacrifices in the temple. So four is the evening prayer, but five is the morning prayer. So let's look at Psalm chapter five. Um, Psalm chapter 5, verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Yahweh. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King, my God, for to you do I pray. O Yahweh, in the morning, you hear my voice. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. In the morning, you can expect to hear me in the morning. Now, I know the New King James says, in the, I, I direct it. I direct my prayer to you and watch. Um, I read the ESV says, um, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. The Hebrew is um, both. That's why sometimes translations divide, because they're like, well, you can only describe one of these in so many words. So the Hebrew is actually both. It's about directing and preparing a sacrifice. So the image of this Hebrew word is that you're laying a sacrifice on the altar, and you're dividing it by its appropriate parts, as the priests would. So you're skinning it, and you're putting these parts there and that part there. Very, you know, detailed. You can read Leviticus about that. I I love how this one translation 
very, you know, free-flowing translation. It just kind of, I think it captures the Hebrew perfectly. It says this. Every morning I lay out the pieces of my life on your altar and watch for fire to descend. That's what the psalmist is asking to do, that in the morning I will prepare my sacrifice. I'm bringing my groanings, I'm bringing everything in my life, and I'm preparing it as you would sacrifice. I'm laying all the little pieces. I'm cutting it all up. I'm putting it here and there and there, and I'm arranging it. But I'm not lighting the fire. That's what the whole, I, I, I direct it to you and watch. It's about waiting for God's fire to consume it. So I'm laying out my life in all of its pieces so that your fire will descend. This is Elisha offering his offering and waiting for heaven's fire. This is not the prophets of Baal. This is what the servant's morning looks like. If we're to be the servant like Jesus, our mornings are going to be morning by morning, and they're going to be laying our life out and waiting for fire to descend. That's what it's going to look like. So that we come back then to Isaiah. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The morning light will teach us the dangers of artificial light. The prayer of the morning will teach us not to pursue the bonfires of this world. Okay. So, how do we serve in the right light? How do we remain servants to culture rather than being attracted to their bonfires and then becoming servants of the culture? How do we serve in the right light? The right light begins in the morning. It begins in the morning. It's no accident, is it, that the four Gospels make the specific point that the resurrection was early in the morning, on the first day of the week. What are they saying? That the resurrection of Jesus is the dawn of everything. It's all starting here and it's getting brighter and better through him. That's the dawn. The rest of the world sees the light sort of like in this, like, is it going up or down? And we're debating the world's getting worse. It's helpless. And I was like, no, 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 no. If we just simply feed people and educate them, it will automatically get better. But Christianity is saying it's because Jesus has raised, and if we follow his path, we are like those walking out of the early morning of the first day of the week. We're moving onward. You know, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they heard God in the cool of the evening of the day. But in the resurrection, we're walking with him in the morning light of a new day. The sun is not setting on the servant. It's rising. And so the right light begins in the morning. But here's where I'm going to challenge us. Because I, I find a literal morning very helpful. Not just the metaphorical, oh yeah, the beginning of a new dawn. That actually getting up before we go somewhere. So not the whole, ah, no toothbrush, just, just mouthwash and grab a granola bar, let's go. <laughs> that can't happen anymore. It's funny when you do watch it, though. Uh, that, that really, friends, if we want to be the servant and we want to serve the culture rather than become its servants, we can't have those mornings. Now, it might look very different for all of us, and there's no formula, there's no code, but there is simply the morning by morning the servant opens his ears to be taught as one who has learned so that he can have a word to comfort the weary. Jesus gets up because when you start your day seeking God's way, you will be so much, you will see so much more clearly the harsh light of the artificial lights of the world. It will just be so much clearer to you. So yes, you know what, if you, if you literally can't because you work at 3 a.m. or whatever, like, understood. God can obviously be sought whenever. But there is a power unavailable to us in the evening that comes in the morning. Because the way you start your day is the way you live your day. 
And just as a side note, you, you, you read, listen to, interview, talk to, get advice from all of like the, the people who seem disciplined and can do things with their life. They all preach a morning routine without exception. No leader just kind of rolls out of bed and then puts on jogger pants and gets to wherever he's going. Like There's a plan every day when they wake up. And friends, if we don't have a morning routine that has Christ somewhere in there, you are not setting yourself up to serve the world. Servants have to prepare for the work they're given. Good servants are ready when the master awakes. The master is not kicking a servant out of bed. The servant is ready for him. Spurgeon said this, and... It took me a while to find. I just remembered it because it stuck with me, but I found it. He said this. It's crazy with things Google thinks you're trying to find sometimes. He said, it is, it is a good rule never to look into the face of a man in the morning till you have looked into the face of God. First face. Now, if you're married, obviously, it might be your wife or your husband. But the first face outside of that we should see every day is a face of Christ. So even if it's five minutes, friends, just establish a morning routine. How many people here drink coffee in the morning? Coffee and Christ is the best combo. So, you know, I don't know what you do with your coffee, but you have no excuse if you drink coffee because like, right there is a window of time. And what if, what if, what if like the Psalms that has an evening prayer and a morning prayer, what if we closed our evenings with the prayer, and we opened our mornings with the prayer, rather than the way so many people do, closing their evenings with their phone and then putting on the nightstand, or waking up to the news or to something on their phone or to some other form of artificial light that's trying to evangelize us. I mean, what if we actually did evening and morning prayer instead? What would happen? So... There's going to be a hundred ways that that looks for you. Go ahead and experiment. I've got an incredibly sophisticated morning routine, which I will share on the podcast instead of here. <laughs> but um, you know what? It's a, I think that if it was important to Christ, it's important for us. Because I, by default, want that artificial light. I learn every morning what I'm to desire. I learn every morning how to serve the world around me rather than become its servant. That's what the servant looks like.